What's up, Two Dope Nation? Hey, I don't know about you, but I really enjoy going to conferences. In fact, I think um, a lot of you um, may have met me and Kevin at a conference somewhere um, in this nation here in the United States of America. Um, there are some really great conferences happening this wintertime, including a dope uh, DEIB forum in Philadelphia. Uh, DEIB, for those of you who... Um, have your heads down and are unable to keep up with the latest lingo stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Really like that next level there. Carney Sando and Associates helps educators find job experiences that support their goals as teachers and or school administrators. An education recruiting firm working with K-12 independent, private, and charter schools across the globe, Carney Sando & Associates provides a free personalized job search service. Right now, Carney Sando is inviting educators to their annual DEIB conference in Philadelphia at the end of January to take part in a two-day hiring and professional development symposium to support schools' equity and inclusion work. Please visit CarneySando.com slash 2Dope. That's C-A-R-N-E-Y-S-A-N-D-O-E dot com slash T-O-O-D-O-P-E to schedule a time to speak with a member of their team and to learn more about this event. Hey, what's good, everybody? Hey, are you an educator struggling with time and money? I mean, are we all? <laughs> well, I want you to meet my friend Alex Sierra, a certified financial planner with Cetera Investors, and he's here to help. Specializing in working with educators, Alex understands the challenges we face from low pay to complex retirement systems. His team specializes in holistic financial planning, focusing on your goals and creating actionable plans to improve your chances of success. Visit his website at www.toriandalex.cetarainvestors.com slash T-O-O-D-O-P-E to schedule an initial virtual consultation with Alex. Mention the code 2 on your meeting and receive 25% off their subscription-based financial planning packages. You can get more info and a link to their website in the podcast description. Cetera Investors is the marketing name of Cetera Investment Services. Securities and insurance products are offered through Cetera Investment Services, LLC, doing insurance business in California as CFG STC, Insurance Agency, LLC. Member, F-I-N-R-A slash S-I-P-C. Advisory services are offered through Cetera Investment Advisors, LLC. California insurance license number 0L05650. Alexander Sierra CFP is located at 605 East Huntington Drive, Suite 203 Monrovia, California 91016, and can be reached at phone number 626-408-1333, extension 3 Hey yo, what is good? What is going on, Two Dope Nation? My name is Gerardo Munoz, and you are listening to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Kevin has Sunday off. Because Kevin's everything. He just came back from Austin. He was kicking it, doing courageous conversations. He just he just gets to it's it's uh, it's his world, MLN, and we 
just get the, the mighty privilege of living in it. Uh, but he is not here this evening with us. There's a little bit of a drag. Miss you, Kev. Um, but you are still listening to the most dangerous podcast in the schoolhouse. You are still listening to where we remix the conversation on race, power, and education. You are still joining us in this digital fugitive space where we can be real with each other. Um, if you're new to the show, uh, you can always follow us on social media um, at Tudo Teachers on Instagram and X, the artist formerly known as Twitter. You can, uh, or your parents, can like us on Facebook, uh, Tudo Teachers, or no, <laughs> Tudo Teachers, what am I talking about? Facebook.com slash two dope teachers and a mic with all of the relevant hyphens i don't even remember how the internet works anymore um we have a website and a blog you can check stuff out there you can get you can see write-ups of the episodes you can get transcripts two dope teachers.com um, and if you have show ideas you want to connect with us two dope teachers at gmail.com and if you are so bold you could even support our content creation on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You can make uh, people of color produce independent media possible. And uh, we we love every penny that we get from folks at the $15 a month rate. You get a sticker, a Two Dope, two dope Nation sticker, which I would be able to show you if we we're doing this on video. But we we're not doing this episode on video. Um, so too bad. Um, so here we are. Um, it's been a it's been a little bit of a wild week. Um, it's one of those weird things I'm like. Like the more you work, the more work there is to do. I don't know if that always. Yeah, how does that work? That doesn't. Yes. That doesn't seem right. Well, how it works is that when you show that you're not mediocre at your job, other people trust you with more responsibilities. But if you yeah. sucked at your job and you did the bare minimum, nobody would trust you with things. Maybe that's. Maybe I need to look into that a little bit. But I also. <laughs> but the the trick is to not be so incompetent that you lose said job. Um, like Fair. you have to. You have to be just like competent enough for people to look at you and say eh he's fine <laughs> right but we're not no no one's in danger right now i don't think so yeah i don't think so we uh, funnily enough we have a um or i say we as if the rest of my team is responsible for this nonsense i brought a big glow-in-the-dark plastic skeleton for halloween um and now he's just my intern i think he's one of our coworkers at this point <laughs> Um, he sits there doing nothing. Um, he's he's very quiet. He doesn't challenge my my decisions, which is really cool. Um, so I love a subordinate that is just obedient. That's right. Well, definitely, although he doesn't really not... do, <laughs> he doesn't really do love anything. A subordinate that doesn't. We lo we love a subordinate that doesn't fight back. Yeah, this is true. Um, yeah, he the, it yeah it it's interesting. His name is Bones, but he really prefers Wessos, But most people can't pronounce that, so. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, this is actually going to be a slightly more serious episode than what we're letting on right now. Um, the stuff is wild in this world right now. And I've been on a search for, um, voices of Palestinian teachers that can, that, that can be amplified with us. And, um, uh, for that reason, um, we are joined by my friend, Emil, a teacher in uh, teacher at a comprehensive high school in California. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, and I say that in a not serious, like not sincere way, because it's been such a loaded question to ask for the last 
now six weeks. Um, it's funny, I'll run into people every weekend have been going to a new protest somewhere here in Southern California. Um, and I've run into people that I haven't seen in person in a couple of years because you grow up, you become an adult, you leave the college setting, pandemics happen, it happens. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're all, we're all just, how are you? And we realize how stupid the question sounds. Right, um, right. And it's not, it's not poorly intended at all. We're just all at, at all. loss for words. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting to sit with heaviness of it. So in the grand scheme of things, um, I am doing all right. Um, you know, there are days and there are hours and there are minutes that feel so different from the next. And, you know, we just kind of take it one piece at a time. Um, yeah. It is a weekend right now. You mentioned it's Sunday. And um, I did spend, unfortunately, half of my Sunday with a killer migraine. So I was in bed. And once the migraine was done, I decided to promptly get on my phone and doom scroll for another four hours and give oh, myself oh, another no. migraine. Because I don't oh. know how else to live in these times. Because You're like, that is I miss where I'm getting the migraine. I missed the migraine <laughs> I just had. Let me go and get it back. Um, so I've come, I've actually, for Love what it's popping worth. Excedrin. That's right. Yeah. Really? Oh, no, you got Excedrin. So that's something, right? I, I've actually, I feel like I've come up with um, a really good response to the, how are you question? I tell people that I'm well. And so what I mean by that, I mean, it dictionary definition, I am not sick. I am not wounded. I am mm. I am well. My body is functioning the way it's supposed to function right now, and I do not have a cold of any kind. Uh, beyond that, that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> so I got to say, the piece about not having a cold of any kind is even like a big accomplishment when you work in K-12. I know you're not in the classroom anymore, but I'm sure you remember how often you were sick when you were in the classroom. Oh, yeah. Especially teaching sixth grade, man. <laughs> Those kids are nasty. Like, I mean, in the sense that they bring nasty stuff into the classroom. You know what? The 11th graders aren't much better. I thought they were, really? but they're not. <laughs> it's funny. Um, my my daughter is in her, a first-year college student, and we were texting the other day, and she's like, dad do people regress when they go to college like she's like i just feel like there are so many of us and it's funny because i'm i'm like bold of you to include yourself in this but she said there are so many of us it just seemed like we were so put together as seniors and then we're now college freshmen and i'm like oh you were put together i don't know about that but but she's like no it's like we we've gone from just kind of clueless to feral <laughs> and like it's pretty amazing uh she is also at art her heart yeah you know <laughs> so and maybe it's an art school thing i don't know um kind of before we launch into the the kind of the the meat of the conversation um i'm actually really curious and i think this probably wasn't as long ago for you as it was for me um, I always want to know with teachers, like, what kind of student were you, right? And then there's an optional part two to that question. What would it be like if you had to teach the child version of you? I'm going to jump ahead to the optional part two, because <laughs> I probably would hate to teach the child version of me. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's a fair assessment or if it's just my own, like, self-criticisms coming to the forefront. Okay. Um, so, Or both. It could student, be both. It could it really could be. I'm going to have to unpack this with my therapist later. Just <laughs> Sorry. Figure that one out. Um, and as a student was very curious about the world. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I think at a pace that her, her teachers couldn't keep up with. Um, she, she was a vociferous reader. She just, anything she could get her hands on, she wanted to know. And she also wanted everyone else to know everything she was learning about. And so she just <laughs> wouldn't freaking stop talking. 
which I think you can relate to. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, the kids who got not, um, excessive talking on the report cards grew up to become podcasters. I don't know if you know, but that's a rule. <laughs> no wonder. It's like, um, I, I really think I'm going to write a memoir one day that's going to be titled, wait, I'm not done. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I have more. Hang on, where are you going? <laughs> that's, that's, that's deeply relatable. Um, so she, she was an excessive talker, that's for sure. Um, and I think the other thing that really comes to mind that is, is very true, not only to my character as a child, but who I am today, um, was this really, really overwhelming sense of emotion and passion for mm. absolutely everything under the sun. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was the kid who, so anyone in the audience who doesn't know about Palestinians and being Palestinian is that that's the first thing that you learn about yourself is that you are Palestinian and that you mm. need to be very firm and, and upfront about it. Um, I was the kid trying to teach my elementary and middle school classmates about Palestine, but like all of them looking at me like a lunatic trying to talk like geopolitical things to them. In, but we in kindergarten class. <laughs> I, I just, you know, we were doing this, but we hadn't even conquered our times tables yet. But I was, you know, already right. trained in the idea of like marching through the streets, calling free, free Palestine. Like, yeah. I mean, you were getting the, and, you were getting the real education at that point, right? I, it's, it was just, it was inevitable. It comes in the household. Um, and I mean, it wasn't just limited to Palestine. I was very passionate about so many things. Um, right. And I think for some, it's a thing that I've learned to value now, but I think the fact that I was loud and passionate and emotional about so many things felt like a burden. Um, yeah. And so I know that that's something I really struggled with. I spent a period of time um, later on, like maybe late high school, early college, trying to tone it down because I felt like I was taking up so much space or because I yeah. felt like no one was listening and I'm wasting my time and my energy um, that the attempt at toning myself down did not last long because it was way too exhausting to do. And yeah. because I finally found people who saw it, who helped me see it as an asset, which I do still claim to be today that it is my greatest strength and my asset and something that I'm very forward about in the classroom of even telling my students that the thing you see in yourself that feels burdensome could be your greatest gift and you need oh, to, you need to look for that. people that will see it as a gift and that will help you remember that it's a gift even in the hardest moments yeah thank you that that that's really deep and it resonates really deeply. I think you would have found yourself regretting telling child Gerardo that um, because <laughs> in, um, let's see, my, my daughter has told me that my inner child is annoying. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So for me, it would be, so seventh grade would have been just a total headache because there just was not a bad idea that I wasn't about to do. Like whatever <laughs> it was that could get attention or a laugh or anything like that. I was also really small, which I think made it more annoying. Um, and but you had and a so Napoleon I, syndrome going on. I don't think it was that. I think it was more of like a, <laughs> like, like, I don't know. It was like, like a flea that just won't stop. And, you know, so it was, it was kind of like that. And it was really funny because there are people who've run into, who I've run into in the last few years who are like, oh, you're actually like, average height like I always think of you as being super short and I'm like yeah no I am <laughs> I'm literally yeah. right on that average so um high school me would have been interesting to teach because I was always seething and in a bad mood and um and I think it was for a lot of 
a lot of the reasons that you shared, which is feeling like I was too much, feeling like, I, you know, the things that I was interested in were stupid and that other people weren't interested in them because they were interested in not stupid things unlike me. And so I think <laughs> seriously, and it kind of carried out college was a whole a trauma that I won't unpack now, but, um, but it was a lot of that too. Um, I had somebody tell me a few years ago, which I thought was really powerful, which was that, you know, if, um, if I'm too much, go find less. And, um, mm. and I really, uh, and I really keep that in my mind. So now that, thank you for sharing I that. Love I that. Can, yeah, isn't that deep? It's just kind of like, oh, I mean, there's less out there. You don't have to, you know, take all this on. But if you take me on, you're taking all of it on, right? And yeah. um, that's how it is. Uh, well, this is great. This has almost been like a therapy session already for me. Um, <laughs> what, what, why is it? Why did you become a teacher? So we, we first got to know who you were a little bit um, when you were in your teacher preparation um, program, and I think you were listening to the show at that point. Um, what is it that made you want to become a teacher? You know, what's funny is growing up, I never pictured growing up to become a teacher. Um, it was not on my radar at all. Um, oh, thank you for saying annoying that. <laughs> K <laughs> Annoying K-12, Amen. but I described she was convinced that she was going to grow up to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's elements to that that I think I still find fascinating. Like I still find physiology really fascinating um and the connection between um how we see the world and how like health manifests or you know de degenerates like yeah. that's all still really fascinating to me and i think that i think what someone should have told me when i was a kid is that i probably was more interested in public health than medicine but i just ended up pursuing none of the above right. um but if i found if only i had known career day didn't come around to my school i just clearly they weren't doing anything like that so no one taught me that there were more options also when you're a child of middle eastern muslim immigrants you have one of three options you grow up to be a doctor a lawyer or an engineer um, I did none of those things, but I did do the next best thing, which was marry one of them. So, you know, <laughs> covered some of my bases. You did. You did. Parents are pleased. <laughs> yeah. Parents are pleased. Um, the journey to being a teacher. Um, so I started college pre-med bio major, like most other brown kids. Um, <laughs> and I promptly failed my entire first year of college. Oh, man. Um, I was not cut out for the life, um, but I was in absolute stubborn denial. I refused even when my best friends told me like, hey, it's not even just about like the grades. Like you just don't seem like you're happy right now. Like I feel like yeah. you'd be better in something else. And I just told them, no, you don't under you just don't know me. And like nobody understands me. And yeah, I was right, getting real right. emo and angsty about it. Um, <laughs> and then there comes a point in university where if you fail enough classes, the university makes the decision for you, which is exactly what my institution did. Um, they dismissed me from the university because I was on academic probation for many quarters in a row. Oh, um, wow. No progress in sight. I mean, let, um, let, let, so... Let's start a club because I feel like I'm one of the founding members of that club. <laughs> although, although because my university was a top five party school in the country, they didn't really um, have a whole lot of ground to stand on beyond just putting me on academic pro. It's like, it's like, so you're going to talk about kicking me out and literally... <laughs> <laughs> like this is what's happening at have your you, school. Have you seen their like, grades? Have you, have yeah, you, you need you need me more than you realize. So it, it <laughs> rang hollow at my school. You may have gone to a more selective school than I did. <laughs> so compare notes off off record. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I so the university made the decision for me. I was dismissed, um, and I 
that was a slap in the face of like, okay, I need to not be a science major. Um, I need to be looking into something else that's going to work for me. So I did what I needed to do to get back into the university, um, transfer classes, and just kind of demonstrating like, hey, I, I actually am a good student. I just made some poor choices here. Um, but in that started the journey of trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to major in. And so I bopped around. I went on a little like, you know, quest of trying on different things. I tested out history. I tested out sociology. I tested out liberal studies. I tested out all kinds of things out there. I knew immediately I didn't want to do like poli sci or international relations because everyone in those majors, no disrespect to anyone who's one of those majors, everyone in those majors seemed really pretentious and really like also impersonal. Um, Yeah. I was also very invested and involved when I was an undergrad in Palestine activism work. And the people who infuriated me the most were the people who had taken exactly one international relations or poli sci lower division class and then would come up to me in the quad and tell me, hey, I think I have the solution to your big problem. And I'm like, God bless it. You (laughs) after 70 years, no one else could come up with anything but you, you. Chad, you, you got it. Thank you, Chad. A 19 year old freshman figured it out. <laughs> Chad knows. Thanks, Chad. Oh, their names were never Chad, actually. I should be real. I heard that Chad's Chad. were actually Brandon. decent, where Kyle's were like terrible. I don't know. This is why my daughter tells me. <laughs> I don't know. The Kyle's that I encountered were pretty decent. I'm not going to. Okay. Uh, justice for Kyle. Um, yeah. <laughs> Brandon. Brandon really was the yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, and so I knew that I wasn't going to go that route. I knew I was never going to grow up to be like, you know, in, in policy in that regard. It just did not. Everything that I tried out, it was like, okay, it was the, 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 um, like the Goldilocks just right sort of speaking, but like some of it just didn't, there was something missing each time. So yeah. sociology was great. It was probably my, the closest best fit before I finally got to my landing spot. I was in a history class and I'm like, you know what? I do love history, but like the thing I hate about history is that it always feels very like lack of people. It's it's lacking in the personal stories and it's just very yep. like dehumanized, depersonalized, like, and then this happened and then this happened. And it's like, okay, but like there, there were people there and there was a culture yeah. there and like there was, there, there has to be more to the story. And I was really like yeah. trying to wrap my brain around it. Um, and then eventually I was introduced to a discipline I had never been familiar with before, which was ethnic studies. Mm. and when I came across that as a discipline it was like the hallelujah chorus like the (laughs) clouds parted and the hallelujah chorus sung to me exactly I I spent I didn't even take the class I sat in on a single day course or not like a single day of class and it was just like that's it I'm sold um so you know I found my major that part of my journey wrapped up cleanly and it had a happy ending but then came the next part of the journey which is what the heck does one do with an ethnic studies degree (laughs) studies degree and at the time, I didn't really have, there wasn't really a lot out there to show me what options there were besides to stay in higher education and academia. Yep. Yep. So I figured that the only option I had was to go pursue a PhD. Um, mm-hmm. That also just didn't feel, I mean, I love, like I said, I love learning. I'm very curious about the world. Um, I, will, I will be found reading like until my last breath, but yeah. Um, also very much about praxis um and i grew up in a in a tradition of community organizing and boots on the ground and and using your knowledge to create actionable change in your community whether it's a local community or a global community yeah um and so a phd just didn't seem to line up with what i was doing there yeah um so i graduated college 
having no idea what I wanted to do. I applied to a bunch of nonprofit organizations just to like have a job and pay my bills. Uh, not a single one hired me because uh, oh, that happened. Yep. Is what it is. And so um, it was a, maybe six months after graduation, my friend reached out to me. She at the time was an office manager at a private school. And she said, hey, one of our teachers is quitting mid-year and we need someone to fill in. I know that this isn't what you wanted to do, but like, can you come? Like, it's, it's we have five months left in the school year. You know, can you basically come teach the class? Just come hold it months? together. Like, okay. Hold it together. Um, we need some tape and glue. Exactly. And I had done like <laughs> tutoring and like small sure. workshops in college. So it's like, it wasn't totally far-fetched from what I had experienced doing. Uh, the difference is that the teacher that quit was a first grade teacher. <laughs> Okay, so, that's different. <laughs> it, was a, it was a first grade teacher at a very small private school. And so the class comprised of a whopping four first graders. One, two, oh, three, my. four. I could fit them all. It's, it's not ethical, but I could fit them all in my car and take them somewhere <laughs> with me if I wanted to, you know? <laughs> um, and so that experience as as strange as it was it was definitely the eye opener of like you know what i do i actually think i could see myself in a classroom long term just not with the little ones and not in a private school yeah. setting yeah no disrespect to those four cuz they were nope. some of the sweetest humans that i I've, I've ever known and i even ran into one of them last month two months ago and he's mm -hmm. now in what eighth grade oh, ninth man. grade he's That's... he's a whole like it's in it was insane it's a I, whole adolescent <laughs> I looked at him and teary and got teary eyed and he's just like, who are you stranger? Cause it's been several years. And I had to explain like I was your teacher for five months. Um, but yeah. When I started making the moves of like, I've got to figure out. So I, I transitioned out of the pri private setting and into the public school setting. I did three years yeah. of substitute teaching um, during the substitute teaching era was also when I was doing my credentialing work um, to become to get my secondary credential for social science. Um, and the goal always was to teach ethnic studies because I'd started yeah. hearing at that point about like it was still a very new idea um, adopting ethnic studies into high schools. I think the only places I had yeah. heard of people doing it prior to this had been the really, quote unquote, fringe school district. So San Francisco yeah. Unified, Oakland Unified up in Northern California. But like it wasn't really hitting the mainstream, but it was yeah. it was slowly it was it was the beginning of that campaign to make it become a graduation requirement in the state yeah. of California. So yep. my thing was also like, I'm getting in early. This is great. I, I will have, someone will actually want me to teach their children because I'll have yeah. a skill that very yep. few other people will. Um, That's right. I lucked out when the school that my plan was, I, you know, I'm going to do the thing where I get my history teaching job, keep my head down until I get tenure. And then as soon as I have tenure, start pushing admin of like, we need to have an ethnic studies class. And like, I was ready to rock the boat yeah. and I was so lucky. And so, um, think um i was very lucky and also like i don't want to say underwhelmed but like it felt almost <laughs> anticlimactic right. when i got my first teaching like, job oh, so the I'm, one that I'm, i still I'm have doing the thing i guess i'm doing the thing oh that's that's exactly what happened and they can't you know I, they hired me and i figured like okay I'm, I'm teaching history that's what it is and i show up on the first day of school and they're like oh no, no no we already have an ethnic studies class prepared here's the curriculum fourth teach day one as a teacher <laughs> like i didn't have to fight for this yeah. I came ready. I had to like put a, You're like, I had to yeah. put away my megaphone and everything. You, you better. <laughs> <laughs> what do we want? Justice. And they're like, okay. Oh, here you go. <laughs> oh, and yeah. So, yeah. It's so, it's so, so, it tied together, tied everything together just in such a almost, um, 
serendipity way, I guess, of yeah. like so many things that I'd done in undergrad of the community organizing and the youth mentorship and the community education yeah. elements and like, you know, and obviously it's not a perfect like transition over of those skills because at the oh, end of, of the day, the people that we teach in our K-12 classrooms are hostage and half of the work is convincing them that you actually are there to help them and you're not their enemy. Um, right. Yep. But it's kind of where I ended, how I ended. That's a very long version of that story. And I definitely should have no, it a little bit. Nah, it's all good. <laughs> That's no, because I think, I think, it, I think it's interesting because I think, well, one of the, one of the side things I worked on for the last year was this campaign called Voices for Honest Education. And a lot of it was aimed at ending the dehumanization of teachers. And so, mm-hmm. which I don't think we were successful um, in ending it, but, but I think that what I'm noticing as we, as we revisit some of that work is that it's incredibly meaningful when people actually are able to see the wholeness of a teacher, how a teacher became a teacher. Um, Cause I think you and I have kind of similar narratives. Like I didn't dream about being a teacher. I want to do other things. Um, and I kind of happened into it again because of ethnic studies, um, because that was the first time I had felt inspired to teach something, right. That a subject that I could like really get, get excited about. And we, we didn't have that either. This is also in the late 20th century. Um, (laughs) so we didn't have that either, but, um, but being able to build it and essentially having a principal that was really supportive and a principal who was like, listen, the the way that we've been doing school is not working for the kids that we serve. So we're going to be innovative and we're going to meet the kids where they are and we're going to find out what they care about and what motivates them and why they want this education. We're going to build it around that. So um, really powerful stuff. But uh, yeah, no, thanks. I really in, enjoyed that because I didn't realize how similar our paths were um, going into it. Um, so you made some reference to this just in the beginning, talking about the kind of student you were. Um, and we talked about this in, in, you know, when we were kind of talking about this episode. Um, this is a redundant phrase, but you are unapologetically Palestinian. I've never met any other type of Palestinian. Um, and you talked a little bit about how that that identity is axial. It, it's not an incidental part of who you are. It is it is the the basis of cultural identity. Um, it's been an awful month and, um, and I'm, I just want to know as people, um, continue to try to understand or try to listen even, um, the Israeli invasion, how did that news reach you and how did you react? I mean, social media, um, really where everything breaks out. Um, so quick geography lesson, um, Palestinians are everywhere and we don't necessarily all come from, like we all come from historic Palestine, but our connection to different pieces of land informs kind of like our, what our connection is to the present moment. So, um, my family, both of my parents are from the West Bank, which is disconnected from Gaza physically in the sense that it's not a contiguous landmass. Um, 
And so I didn't necessarily get news from family, but rather from social media, just kind of like sharing. These are some updates that are going on. I've been connected to different social media uh, users, content creators, uh, journalists for several years, because this is not the first time that Gaza has been under attack um, in such a strong way, although this is by far the worst that any of us have ever seen. Um, it's, it's, I think it's hard to say that because each time we've said this one is so much worse than the last, but this one is absolutely exponentially so much worse than the last maybe four or five that I can remember combined. Um, and so I've already had these people on my radar on social media from the past. I've already like had the experience of knowing that the narratives that I learn about from mainstream journalism versus on the ground journalism is very different. And so I've just never, um, I've never cut ties or connections to those sources for information in good times and in bad. Um, yeah. And so um, the initial, the initial pieces of information that I got were from um, Friday night when it was still technically October 6th here um, on what the, um, the resistance fighters operation on the morning of October 7th in their local time um, and kind of seeing some of that unfold in the very end of my evening that day. Um, it was a Friday night, you know, how, like how Friday tired feels. And yeah. so I was, I was planning on going to sleep early. I did end up going to sleep somewhat early, but I'm like, you know what? I just, I wonder how this is going to pan out. I wasn't thinking too much about it. Um, and I woke up the next day and it just, it's the way that the internet had completely exploded over all of it on all ends of the, of the political spectrum was absolutely yeah indescribable. Um, and so most of my information initially came from there. Um, and it's still primarily my source of information. Yeah. The complicating element to this that I will add is that um, my husband is not um, Ghazawi, meaning originally from Gaza, but he does have an aunt that lives there. Um, and so she, she lives there under a set of circumstances that are, I almost feel like quintessentially Palestinian because of her status as a refugee. And the fact that when you're a stateless person, you look for any source of stability. And at one point in time, her source of stability was to move to Gaza with her family. Um, you know, this conversation we're talking 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so irony is, it's, yeah. it's, it's not unfound. Um, and it's a set of circumstances that are so quintessentially Palestinian and so hard to wrap your mind around when it's not, when that's not already normal for you to like have such differing stories and such right. unique circumstances. The idea yeah. of being fund to, uh, the idea of being stateless. I was having a conversation about this with um, one of my colleagues who teaches AP human geography and there's stateless people in the context of his curriculum where he's explaining about ethnic minorities that don't necessarily have like their own country and they exist right. as ethnic minorities in another country. Right. Then from my context and my understanding of it is the idea that you have no papers to anywhere on earth not a right. single nation on planet earth will recognize you as, as a person. And, you know, we know that there are plenty of people who are, um, who, who flee their countries, who escape as asylees. Um, at the end of the day, often their passports are still valid, even if they're, you know, the government is tyrannical and not yeah. one that they want to return to. They still do. Right. A lot of people still will have papers. Right. Um, but this, it's this idea of like, go back to your country. And I literally have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Um, that so many people, 8 million people around the world have absolutely no papers to anywhere on planet earth and have been living for three years as refugees. And so to tie it back to 
what's the current cir- circumstances in Gaza. Um, my in-laws, like on the end of my in-laws, we have a couple of family members who are in those circumstances, who are in Gaza and also have no papers anywhere, um, who are not in the minority in that case because half of the population in Gaza are refugees from 1948 and have never been recognized since 1948. Um, and so we've gotten smaller updates, um, or at least in the first couple of weeks, we got smaller updates from that relative. But as the um, cell phone connections and the internet and the um, electricity have been severed at different yeah. points in time, her, you know, communicating with her and her family has been very difficult. And it's not even at this point, it's not even about communicating to get updates on the situation. It's communicating for updates that they're still alive that they're still and alive. that they still have shelter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, one thing that's been really fascinating to me. And I, I'm, I'm by no means a, a scholar of Palestine and Palestinian history and culture at all. I don't know if you knew that, um, <laughs> but, um, but tell. one, yeah. What one, one thing that is just so um, incredible to me is how outside of the Western, the white Western gaze um palestine is on a daily basis right just over over the last over my entire life right um that the only time that the only time that the world is watching is when something bad happens and then Mm -hmm. you have this like scrambling for um look we we have late breaking news we have we have experts who can comment on this and often those experts don't have roots um, in Gaza or the West Bank, and they don't have roots in the diaspora. And so what, one thing I've kind of inferred from speaking with folks from the Palestinian diaspora is that the perspective is just different. It's not that it doesn't, it, it's not that it isn't hitting, it's just not hitting in the same way that it hits uh, Western media. And and that's why it always mm-hmm. feels so uncomfortable to watch the mainstream news talk about this because I'm kind of like, I'm not an expert, but I I've read some stuff and this just doesn't seem this. No, y'all, this isn't how, this isn't how to tell this story and this isn't what's, what's going on. And so that must also be extremely maddening to be surrounded by people who are drawing conclusions from folks that just started focusing on Palestinians a month ago. You know, it's, I, I was explaining this to, I mean, I'm saying this to if I'm not explaining, but sharing. Um, I've been gaslit in a lot of circumstances and a lot of situations uh, on a one-on-one individual scale. And this is like the most macro version of gaslighting I could expect, ever imagine to experience in my life. Um, it's the cognitive dissonance and the, the sense of like detachment from reality is, so overwhelming. Um, and I feel like the only comparable like connection that I can make is actually another form of cognitive dissonance that I was struggling with recently, which was um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, as someone who is as curious about everything, including health science as she is, I spent so much time in the like in the initial year of the pandemic learning about what are responsible public health measures and how do we take care of each other and ourselves and what do we do right. when our government fails us and you know when our when our neighborhoods fail us and it's it was i think 
I felt like I was screaming into a void and like no one could hear me for the better part of a year, if not more than a year, when I would be doing everything I was supposed to do or everything I thought I was supposed to be doing and everything that I felt like were basic asks. And then I would log into Instagram and see people having a whole party in their backyard and, um, you know, just going on living their lives. And it's like people that I, that I know and that I loved and trusted and people who, you know, are not, you know, they're, they're formally educated. They're on like an individual basis, just smart people, but it's just, yeah. Their interpretation of reality felt so different from mine that I honestly felt like I was going insane. I really legitimately questioned my sanity and my wellness yeah. from that. And I thought that that was the hardest and most difficult form of cognitive dissonance I could experience. Even as a Palestinian, that was the worst one I felt like I had experienced in that moment because previous ones I could make sense of it. Things that I've been internally screaming about for the last month and a half blow all of that out of the water um you know i'm i'm logging in and i'm seeing the most outrageous forms of propaganda um just disseminate all over the internet no no journalistic integrity at all um basic basic responsibility for dissemination of information is just out the window um but of course only for one side um that's right I think the most like basic example of this is this idea that any time that new data on um, death counts or injury counts or anything like that is released from the health ministry, um, Western journalism and mainstream media immediately has to tag on a little caveat of Hamas run health ministry. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's less it's, subtle, right? And sometimes it's like, but we don't have any way of confirming that. Which is, and it's, well, so two things there. Number one, um, the United Nations and UNICEF and Amnesty International and several other international organizations have several times over the last two decades verified that, there, that the, the Gaza Health Ministry under the rule of Hamas is dependable, that they haven't shown that they warp with the numbers or anything like that, and that they typically give reliable information. And we have no yeah. reason to mistrust it based on outside um, audits of that information. But yeah. to that same point, um, you know, it's Hamas run health ministry or whatever, but we're not out here giving that same caveat for any other um, institution when they're trying to release counts of civilian deaths and civilian injuries and things like that. You know, we're not tacking on the French run um, news network or the British oh. run, you know, BBC, British Broadcast oh. Corporation, but we're not like reminding not. people that it's run by King Charles or that it's run yep. by whoever the political party like. Or we're not saying that and, uh, you and uh, President Joe Biden, uh, an Israeli ally, like we, we don't we're not we're not we're not adding those it. caveats. No, we're really not. But, all you know, all of those caveats really change the conversation. And, you know, how different would this conversation be if for every single public official, especially in an American context, who made a public statement on this also like as they're making the statement someone with journalistic integrity tax on a little asterisk that says how much lobbying money they've received yeah. to be to be sharing a specific narrative you know how much how many like what what is the dollar amount of their campaign donations that come from political organizations whose commitment is to to the state of Israel in its current state and its current function, right? And and a lot um, of strange bedfellows when you start like kind of looking where where favors are being called in in both 
in both material and non-material ways like you 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 see where you see mm -hmm. these ties that bind certain folks to 100 percent yeah 100% and it's not even necessarily about like it doesn't even have to be about government lobbying exactly. or yes, government law but not necessarily it could also just be how many members of congress have personal finance investments in weapons manufacturing and weapons development yeah how much money do they stand to make in this yeah you know even that alone is questionable and something that should be put forth but it's not part of the equation of journalistic integrity that's being required same way that people are, are raising the standards for what counts as reliable journalism from on the ground in Gaza. And, and, and here's the thing, too, that is just incredible, is that Edward B. Said told us 40 years ago that Islam is covered differently than literally anywhere else. And mm -hmm. so and that's that's the piece. And, you know, I, I feel like I have secondary psychosis because you know what i've read makes me feel really similar to how you described it's like okay like everything i'm hearing is just so far off base and so ill-informed like it, am i crazy that a like am i the only one that thinks this and b like is there something wrong with me because this doesn't make sense whoops like um, and so that that's really intense. And, you know, the, there's there's a quote from from a book I think I shared with you last time uh, we talked um, where it's a non-Western historian contributing to a to a world history textbook that is full of white male Westernists. Um, and when sharing his perspective, he said um, mine was such the minority opinion that it was indistinguishable from error. And I'm like, oh, that just ripped my heart out. And I think to feel like you're actually experiencing some weird warped corner of of the metaverse, right? That that you're that you skip timelines and now you're on a different timeline than the one that you understood um, is just intense. Um, we're going to take a really quick break um, so that we can pay some bills um, or at my age, we call them Williams. We call them by their full name, uh, not bills, but Williams. Yeah. You see that? That's funny, huh? Um, so uh, yeah. So Satara investors, um, the homies, uh, Alex and, um, and his spouse, um, Tori, uh, they sponsor two dope teachers and a mic and they're super dope because they, are trying to find ways for teachers, especially um, look at, looking at you, Emil. Um, they are trying to find ways for teachers to build generational wealth. Like it used to be the only way you could build generational wealth as a teacher is if you were born with generational wealth and, uh, and then you kind of have it. But uh, they're looking at ways to um, understand the retirement systems and pensions in multiple states. Uh, they are actually out of Cali. They're in the Pasadena area. And they've got this cool subscription sort of uh, method of helping people invest and giving financial advice. Uh, Alex was a first-generation college graduate, and so he really wants folks to be able to build that wealth, which is really good because I would not have stayed awake in those classes. But Alex is a smart person who stayed awake in those classes, and Tori's doing dope work also. You're going to hear both of them on the podcast in the next couple of months. 
Um, Tori actually has a podcast where uh, she talks about how to support uh, women of color entrepreneurs. So pretty cool stuff. They're cool folks. If you're interested in learning about them and getting the two dope nation discount, you can go to Tori and Alex com, And when you schedule a meeting and put in the code two dope, you'll get 25% off of their initial services. So it's super dope. Um, check out Satera investors. The link is in the show notes. All right, folks, we are back. Um, so, you know, Emil, thanks for sharing all that. This, this is such a, a valuable perspective. Um, and, you know, it, it gets said a lot how important it is that we not blindly follow the mainstream media that, that is out there, but oftentimes we don't really know what that means. Um, and I think that gives, I think what you shared gives us a way to think about that. And that not only is it um, this particular situation, but the entire history of this conflict has been skewed through um through media markets and you know to your point other folks who who are looking to engage in deception and manipulation uh for their own kind of benefits i want to i want to take it from the geopolitical to the individual for this next kind of question um in the last month or so um what is teaching been like for you in the skin that you're in and the identity that you are i imagine that it wasn't sunshine and rainbows before it wasn't like eh, this is so great being a teacher of color in these schools um and then it went south so talk a little bit about what that what teaching has been like um through this so it's an, it's an interesting framing you're putting there of like i'm sure it wasn't great to begin with um I ironically, maybe three weeks before um, everything started, I was reflecting back. I'm in my third year of teaching, like officially in terms of the like high school public credentialed K-12 setting. Um, And I was reflecting like three weeks before everything. um, And I was like, you know what? This year might actually be the year that I find my groove. Um, First years were really rough for just a number of reasons. Uh, Some of it related to being a new teacher. Yeah, I can only imagine, um, you know, and there's just so much happening there. And some of it is related to early service. Some of it is related to pandemic and post, yeah. if we're even post pandemic, some of it is just related to circumstances, life um, yeah. and such. And so it was ironic that I was like, you know what, I think this year might be the year. And, um, you know, October came in real quick and said, ha, jokes on you. <laughs> okay. um, October is always a rough time. And then October got really rough. Um, October's like you thought this might be a year um, and you might have a year but this is not that year but it's not going to be this year (laughs) you freaking thought Um, and so it's definitely been a tough time Um, I I know that obviously teachers are people too Um, teachers go through all kinds of like life hardships while still being in the classroom you know I can can't even count you know, the number of teachers that I had when I was in school who were going through the loss of a family member or really difficult medical stuff or different things like that. Um, and, you know, still were showing up and doing the job, even if they weren't necessarily like killing it at the job, they were still doing what they right. could. And so like, I know that this exists. And at the same time, and I like, you know, my students, of course, I mean, hopefully 
they had had some encounter that humanized their teacher before they got to me. Um, yeah. But then it's been interesting trying to explain the depths of this kind of grief and righteous anger that has just like constantly been sitting in my chest for the last six weeks. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a little easier, even if students by eight, by grade 11, even if they haven't experienced loss of a family member, they can kind of imagine what it might be like. If they haven't experienced, you know, some kind of, you know, devastating illness or a car accident or, you know, all the other like difficult things that, that hit people's lives in a really like tough and meaningful way, even if they haven't experienced it, they can begin to imagine it. One is so out of reach for them. Um, and they, mine for the most part have been very kind, um, been well-intended. They, they don't always say the right thing, but I'm not expecting them to say the right thing because right. I don't even know what the right thing to say is. Yeah. Um, there was a day three weeks in where um, the day after the initial, um, when the Al-Ahli hospital was bombed, um, and I just got to school that morning, and all I could see in front of me were visions of what I had been looking at on social media the day before, which were piles and piles of bodies in front of the, the hospital ruins and the doctors of the hospital holding a press conference with the bodies in their bags and shrouds around them because they've become so desperate to show, to humanize themselves and their loss and the violence that they have to go and hold a press conference in those circumstances just for people to believe that this is real. And I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it. I got to work that day. I had a plan and I just couldn't, I opened my mouth to start first period and all, all, all I could do was cry in front of that entire class. I just, I sobbed right in front of them. Um, and I tried explaining like, you know what, I told you guys like last week, the week before that, like there's been some really like tough, like, you know, way bigger than us stuff going on, um, on the other side of the world. I don't know when I'm going to be ready to talk to you about it because I sincerely just wasn't like in the headspace to do so with fidelity. Um, and that was the day that I, I broke, um, I just completely shattered in front of all of them. Um, I got, like, I managed to get to my computer. I printed out a bunch of, like, coloring book pages. And I was just like, you know what, you guys, we're taking a mental health day. Color, yeah. I'm going to cry. Um, and they were they were so sweet and understanding about it. And, you know, everyone was saying, very like I said, very well-intended kind things at the end of class. They're leaving, and they're like, feel better tomorrow. And I'm like, <laughs> sure <"Okay."> thing. <laughs> I don't know, I'll do my best. Um, you know, but I mean, they just, it's so far out of their depths. Um, and at the same time for them to reach for whatever kinds of empathy and kindness that they do know is very moving and very touching. And so yeah. to their credit, my students have been great. Um, and they have been teetering a very careful line where they want to ask questions and I can tell they want to ask questions, but they also want to be sensitive. And so they, they'll wait until they would wait until I had what seemed like a good day to be like, we might be asking for a lot, but we do want to know more. We are seeing stuff online. If you're able to, it would be great if you could explain some of it a little bit. Um, and the fact that they were so forthcoming and so gentle. And so um, intentional. Really empowered and me. so just right? like, I'm like, I don't think right? I've seen any discourse like that on online. Like the Oh, no, the, the, the internet is a cesspool. The internet is a cesspool. My classroom is where joy happens. Like, yeah, I love that. Granted, you know, I mean, you know, not all of my 11th graders are like this. I had one kid, like, who, 
so refused to like do a reading out loud that when his buddy popcorn chose him to read the next paragraph, he took his gum out of his mouth and stuck it right onto his friend. Um, and you know, hmm. my 11th yeah. graders contain multiple stuff happens in the range that they have in terms of emotional maturity, but um, they've been so kind. And so, you know, the gentleness and the consideration that they've shown me really has felt it's been a very, very stable light in really profound sense of darkness. Um, and so I know I haven't been on my A game. I had plans for October, of course, to be different this year than it has been in previous years. That, of course, didn't happen. But, um, you know, I worked with what I could. Um, and I did eventually end up having a conversation with my ethnic studies classes specifically. Um, I hadn't broached the topic with them earlier because I had been hearing so much about, and I mean, like not even hearing so much, I knew all this already from previous experience of, um, you know, reprimands, if not complete um, punishment for speaking about Palestine. That is the, it is the litmus test for freedom of speech. It's the litmus yeah, test is. for progressive ideas. It's the litmus test for radical ideas and everything yeah. under the sun. Um, and I mean, I was no stranger to it. I, I've experienced being doxxed before. Um, I've experienced the threat of like the things that you said in college and that you did in college are going to follow you and you're never going to get into grad school and you're never going to get a job. And, you know, things that I was threatened with that ultimately didn't pan out, but I know have happened for so many people where they've been, um, you know, their places of work have been called in order to demand their termination. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I know it that doesn't mean studies, it although my, happen. I mean, that that's the thing exactly. is when you, when you are an educator of color with an activist disposition, it could happen anytime. The 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 really internet, could. yeah, the internet, like could like I still sit here twenty five years after starting my educational career, just knowing that man, if some stuff came out, like um, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, that's the thing. So you never mm -hmm. you never feel truly free of it. I think I interrupted you though. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, some of my friends who are not in education and who knew, who know my disposition and how I have been historically, they were like, yeah, I bet you've just turned all of your lessons at school into Palestine lessons. And I'm like, no, I don't know how to do that without like getting in trouble. And I'm still learning how to do the like subversive trouble sort of thing. You know, I believe yeah. in, I believe in good trouble, but you have to know how to do good trouble. It has to be very strategic and very carefully thought out and not just yeah. rash. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, to, to the disappointment of several of my friends, that is not indeed what I did because I also have a responsibility to teach U.S. history um, and to also cover my, cover myself and to cover my students and make sure that I'm still teaching the standards. Um, yeah. And so to the credit of, to, to the credit of the colleague I mentioned earlier, who uh, teaches AP human geography um, previously in a, in another school year, he had asked me to come speak about the reality of stateless people um, in the context of refugees. Um, and that's something that I had already done for his human geo class before. Um, mm -hmm. And he reached out to me and he's, he's very senior in our in our school I think he might be like the third or fourth longest serving teacher from our school site as far as like time in the district so he's, yeah. he's untouchable right yeah. um yeah and he he reached out to me and he said hey you remember how we did this thing a couple years ago if you don't mind and if it's not too much trouble I'd like to ask you to do it again but is there a way that we can tie in like something at the end that says like okay now how does that relate to today 
um, it would basically be like under his supervision with his classes. And right. so him, him offering that to me, although I don't think he realized how, how much it meant to me for him to make that offer. Um, I should probably go tell him how much it meant to me. <laughs> um, you know, but it's, um, it gave me a sense of safety that I don't think I would have had if I tried to do it by myself. And so that felt like a blessing to like, okay, if I can do this with his classes, let me also give it a try with my classes. And so I kind of, yeah. I gave him a little like heads up of like, Hey, on this day, this week or next week, um, I'm doing this thing for Mr. So-and-so down the hall. Um, and I'm just going to kind of take you all with me because some of you have had questions yeah. and I want you to feel like you have a space to answer them. And also like, this is, this is how it's going to happen. Um, yeah. You know, if you're not interested in learning about it, that's fine. Just be respectful. But like, I want to make sure that other people who have curiosities know that this is always a safe space to ask questions um, and to kind of go from there. I think the other big yeah. thing that came up uh, in that in that interaction or in those presentations, I should say, this is something that I've emphasized with my classes from day one as an ethnic studies teacher, um, is that I worked very hard from day one to eliminate the idea that we can ever truly be unbiased. Yeah. That it's simply not something that people can That's do right. um, right. because bias is an inherently human thing, you know, and I, we, it's gotten to a point where I can just ask them if something has been touched by human hands and human minds, is it possible for it to be truly unbiased? And the whole course of class answers, nope, nope, That's they right. already, so they have that understanding. And so I'll, you know, the follow-up question is, okay, so then what do we do? Like, how do we, like, what do we, like, what's our next step? And they said, we yeah. can't, we're never going to find something that's unbiased, but if we can identify what the bias is, that's right. what power it has, we take away the power the bias has. But if we pretend yeah. it's not there, it, it has power over us. And it's, it, you know, they're incredible. They're rock <laughs> that, stars. And that's not happening as much it. as we would expect in academia. Um, it's just really interesting no. in, the, in these doctoral no, courses of I'm not. taking, how many people just have such a hard time embracing the notion that everything is a point of view and some points of view have certain types of evidence and some have less it's just like all mm -hmm. this kind of thing but that's and that's and who's decided what's more legitimate or less legitimate that yep. in of itself is a form of bias you know yeah um so from there i was able to tell them like you know because you all know this already i'm telling you this is a biased presentation not going to be like I tried to make it as balanced as I could but yep. there's no world in which I could make it perfectly unbiased and nope. so please go forth please continue to ask questions I will try my best to like you know to to teach you with fidelity because that is my responsibility but yeah that experience along with just like teaching in general has really I can go on a little bit of a tangent here um it's made me really grapple with how we teach social science yeah. As a, um, yeah. as a content area, because, yep. you know, the question of what's reliable and biased is, you know, that's an important thing, but it's also made me think about one of the ways that social science education has, I feel like tried to get around um, indoctrinating and biased education is this emphasis on primary sources, which epistemologically is not a bad thing, right? Like right. primary sources are in theory, good. At the yeah. same time, it's made me really grapple with what I was taught is an effective primary source um, because I'm now thinking about, you know, in a history class, when we show students newspapers from 1890, it's presumed to be a dependable primary source. Yeah. And, you know, 
for better or for worse. I mean, it tells us um, something, I think about, but the idea, the real conversation is what is this telling what's us? What's not being told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And not in terms of not just what are the facts that are being listed here that we should learn, but what may be impacting a it's person's a bigger point story. of view who writes this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. deep. That's hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that I think a lot of us are trained or prepared to do in whatever teacher training we receive. And so I'm grappling with this idea of how does this making me reconsider so many things that I thought to be best practices, right? Yeah. Um, because now I'm, I mean, not now, this is obviously something that I've experienced before, but I'm now re-experiencing in a very visceral present moment. Um, yeah. You know, are newspapers dependable in this moment? No, I, I, I'm going to say it right out front. I don't trust most newspapers. Um, and the idea that, you know, primary source means as close to the moment and on the ground as possible. We're talking about journalists that are literally living in the moment, live reporting what they're what they're experiencing yeah. Um, yeah. and how this is going to change the learning of, of these critical moments for, for decades, if not centuries to come. Yeah. And it's really, I'm just, I'm sitting with a lot in terms of yeah. what even are my best practices. It's even making me reconsider so many things that from an ethnic studies perspective have things that I've taken for granted as best practices. Um, you know, like I, I feel like ethnic studies 101 good practice is something like a land acknowledgement, right? And I mean, I, I don't disagree with land acknowledgements in the sense that like, I'm not going to fight people about it, but it's also like, <laughs> right. but like, I'm also sitting with this idea of like in a hundred years or 200 years, if, if, you know, there is no successful decolonization of Palestine, are there going to be Israeli citizens doing land acknowledgements over my family's ruins? Yep. Yeah. What do they actually mean beyond the words that are spoken? Um, yeah, that that's that's deep. And, and I think that um, we did another interview um, with a Palestinian educator who's who talked about the about the um, the imperative of teaching about Palestine as a social justice um, study mm-hmm. and and how that is something that you know that that we ha- that we haven't done for any marginalized communities um you know we, we've done it more for some than others um the the stuff you're sitting with is so deep and i think like i don't know like i think that the things that we experience in, in our mo- most difficult moments like some sometimes there's an impulse to say okay i'm not thinking clearly right now i'm coming from a, a place of hurt but i think there's also um you know, the word I keep thinking about is disruption and, and the disruption in, in your daily teaching life. Like the, the root word of disruption is rupture. Something breaks open mm-hmm. and then you can see things that maybe were not as, that hadn't surfaced in the same way. And um and I'm hearing you process that right now. And even like this has shaken your identity as a teacher in in all of these ways to where you're interrogating everything that you did through, through this frame and that, and that's painful. Um, and it's important, you know, because, because it all means mm-hmm. something um, in this. Um, you've touched on a bunch of actually the topics that we are going to talk about in the last couple of questions, but I want to, I want to center those because I think that, I think that um, I don't want people to miss some of the great things that you shared, particularly around your own positionality. 
with this ongoing human catastrophe, which at this moment that we're having this conversation, it's going on with no no sign of abetting. Um, even ceasefire is something that people don't want to get on board with in decision-making spaces. So I, I, I want to name that we're in this right now. Um, you've talked about kind of who you are and how you are showing up in, in this discussion. Um, is there anything else you kind of want to say about your positionality that folks in the audience should kind of hear in relation to this situation? In terms of, we're talking in terms of positionality as far as like how I show up as a Palestinian or how I show up in the classroom. I, I think, well, I think all of it, right? So I, th I think what, when I think of positionality, I, th I think of it in terms of, you know, who am I to bring these stories? Who am I to bring these perspectives? And it isn't like a question of whether I should be bringing these, but actually who, who am I that is, that is living in this moment as myself, as a teacher, as a Palestinian person, as a descendant of refugees, um, that kind of thing. Tough one. It shouldn't be tough, right? But I know that my own insecurities have made it feel difficult. Um, yeah. My own my own fears about retaliation um, or, or speech repression have made yeah. it a more difficult question than it should be. Yeah. Um, so let me let me see if I can work my way backwards by kind of like starting from the top of who I am yeah. and working my way down. Yeah. Um, my name is Emel, and I am the descendant of um, parents who were displaced in 1967, um, who were forced to leave by foot from their hometowns in what is now known as the West Bank, but has historically been known as Palestine. Um, my, my father was eight years old when he walked by foot from his hometown in a small village near Hebron. Uh, and walked to Jordan with his mom and his three younger siblings. My mom was eight months old in 1967 when her family left by foot from their small town outside of Jerusalem to go to Jordan. Um, and she was nearly left behind um, in that journey because she had chicken pox that week that everything went down and her family, her, she'd been separated from her parents. Her aunt was carrying her and she said, why am I carrying her? I have like 10 other children I need to take with me. She's going to die anyway. Like why I could I might not be here yeah. um, because of these very real circumstances that I am now watching repeat themselves in 4k on Instagram. Things that I had only heard stories about that I had no visual representation of that I can now see repeat themselves over and over again. Before 1967 was 1948, in which my maternal, not my maternal, my paternal grandmother was technically made a refugee when her, her family, her parents um, were displaced from their homes. And so she died twice a refugee, actually, when she passed away a couple years ago. Come into the classroom and I do the work that I do because... Palestinian has been so forthright in who I am, in addition to being uh, a Muslim woman, who I, which I would be remiss to not mention, right? That's definitely been something that informs so much of who I am. Um, I didn't come into K-12 because I, um, you know, I have a deep love for standards-based grading or curriculum development or anything like that. I didn't come into K-12 because, um, 
you know, someone else in my life was a teacher. No one else in my life actually is a teacher. My brother and I are both teachers, but we are within a year of each other in terms of years of service. We're just in an ocean of small business owners and people who were supposed to grow up to be doctors and lawyers and engineers. We grew up to be teachers. Um, And my work in my classroom is informed by the idea that knowledge that I've gained and that I've pursued because I'm Palestinian, along with being a Muslim woman, has fundamentally shaped how I see the world. The idea that, um, not even the idea, the reality that Palestinian refugees all over the world are, despite their circumstances, known to be among the most educated people of of their peers um, is is nothing short of remarkable because that's been our pursuit. Um, And even without formal education, people that I grew up with, even my illiterate grandmothers, both of them who died never learning how to read more than the letters needed to sign their names on legal papers, um, showed me that there is a way to have knowledge and to have an understanding of the world without necessarily needing to crack open a book. Because of all of that, I think that I come into the classroom and I say, there has to be a way for people to learn how the world around them works. And if I can't make that make sense for a student in one method there has to be another way by which I can access that part of that they can access part of that brain not even me accessing it right mm-hmm. education has been so tantamount and, and paramount to our survival um, telling our stories and sharing our knowledge and sharing not only our knowledge with each other and with our descendants but with everyone that we encounter not only makes us so quintessentially Palestinian right because I can't it, it's like a joke about vegans we can't go five minutes without saying we're Palestinian um, and, and that in of itself is such a radical act because the knowledge that Palestinians exist and that Palestinians are who they are and continue to identify who they are directly combats the settler colonial goal, their objectives to eliminate people and our culture and our knowledge from this earth and to, to push us into assimilation and to push us into, um, to disappearance and to, not being who we fundamentally have been for so many generations. And I know that my, my story is not unique because for, although the, the methodology by which I've come to this conclusion and the, the mechanisms by which I exist are, might be a little bit unique, I know that they're not that different from the way that you identifying as a Chicano represents your own resistance. I know that it's not that different from, you know, our, our Native American brothers and sisters who have been, resisting the the assumption that they've gone extinct when in reality they are some of the most fierce examples that I look to for resistance and reclamation of your own identity in the face of a colonial entity that wants you to disappear. Um, thank you. The... Um... Wow. Um, Just phenomenal um, outlining of, of your personhood in this. And and like, I'm, I'm sitting here writing things down that you're saying, because it's just so quotable. And and the last thing I wrote was the radical act of existence and, um, and how powerfully you, you are representing that. Um, I, w- I was gonna I was gonna ask a question about allyship um but my concern is that it centers the wrong thing mm-hmm. that 
you know, allyship, I think you've given a couple of examples and there's a part of me that just doesn't want to end on that. There's a part of me that just wants to end with the words you gave us plus top five. We got to do top five. Um, Of course. I think there's something um, that I, I can help you reframe your wording or reframe your thinking. That'd be great. There, I've, I've experienced something very strange in the last month and a half, which is a lot of people that I haven't really been in communication with in the last couple of years of my life, but who I still have on social media, yeah. uh, reaching out and learning their, their people I never thought would be interested in this and who I thought were tuning me out all through high school um, in my <laughs> annoying days, um, who are now really deeply immersed in it and who are reaching out to me and, and thanking me for, for my vulnerability and not just thanking me in a private setting, but also resharing information to, to whoever they have on their social media. I'm seeing people that I may not necessarily have imagined coming these people in their adulthood and not because they were bad people, but just because I didn't think that that was something that could catch their attention. Um, there's been such a great change and shift in discourse that although I know I'm, I'm still experiencing cognitive dissonance and I'm screaming yeah. into a void, void is getting smaller. Um, the sheer the sheer range of destruction that we've watched has been so insurmountable but the discourse is changing i i would be remiss if i didn't say that i've witnessed a great change since i first started doing community organizing work and since i first started doing kind of seeing this all unfold on social media um and so you know a lot of folks reaching out and, you know, really trying to be allies. And I applaud them for that. And I think that the next important step is how do you graduate your allyship to become um, being an accomplice? Do you, allyship to me sounds like um, acknowledging my grief. Um, Accomplice, being an accomplice feels like bearing witness to it in a much more personal way where you don't necessarily have to, where there, there are things to do. Um, right. And it's, are you, are you taking on the labor that also allows me to to grieve while we're also doing the work together? And are you doing the work because you know that it's effective or because you want to feel better about yourself and you don't want to go to sleep guilty at night? Accomplice, being an accomplice in this current moment is really tough, right? Because I think the optics of the situation look different than what we've seen with a lot of other social justice movements. What an accomplice looks like for people fighting against anti-Blackness and police brutality looks different. Being an accomplice to immigrant justice looks different. Being an accomplice for, you know, so many of these different movements, may not they don't necessarily translate over perfectly. Um, and so... Nor, nor should it, right? Right. Um, and so in this circumstance, um, are you an accomplice in the sense that you are willing to discomfort yourself for this greater idea? Are you willing to confront those who you may have loved uh, and, and valued uh, and really confront them with, with your own humanity and their own humanity of our complicity in everything? Are you willing to consider the fact that our, our livelihood in this country is predicated on, on supporting the, the settler colonial project, both here and abroad. Um, and are we willing to do more than just like have a nice land back signature on our emails? Um, for people who are um, materially connected, right? Whether it be through citizenship, whether it be through financial um, 
financial means, whether it's through what institutions you work for, how much of that are you willing to sacrifice in order to remove your complicity? I've had people, I've seen countless things come up in the last couple of weeks of uh, people resigning from their positions from, from public policy, from the UN, from, from Capitol Hill, from the cabinet. Um, more to that, people who have resigned from positions at really well, good paying positions, mind you, um, at weapons manufacturers like Boeing and Raytheon, yeah. you know, yeah. our dollars speak for our values. Are you willing to are you willing to face the discomfort that might come with confronting that your your source of income also funds funds this violent genocide? Yeah. Um, I think the the highest example of accomplishment, and I know that this isn't attainable for everyone because they're not it's not applicable to them, but I saw I saw a public post of someone who renounced their Israeli citizenship. They made a public statement and they said, I've been wow. a citizen for, you know, X number of years this is my formal renouncing of this citizenship. And then they acknowledge that it's, they have to go ask permission from the embassy to renounce their citizenship. Um, and how, how incredible and wow. strange is that, that you have to ask permission from the country that you wish <laughs> you to disconnect from. Yeah. Permission to disconnect because it's so dependent on its citizens being committed in order yeah. for it to continue functioning as, as the state that it is. Um, Listen to Palestinian voices. Um, listen to what people in, in Palestine have called for. Um, I think some people have been hesitant to share posts or things on social media because they're worried that it looks performative or it looks like virtue signaling. And in a lot of other contexts, maybe that is the case. In this case, because of the cognitive dissonance and the big gap between what narratives being portrayed by government entities and mainstream media versus what's being put on the internet, sharing that information is, is absolutely non-negotiable. It's not, it's not the virtue signaling that some people might make you think it is yeah. um, posturing. And if someone tells you that that's what it is, that's them reflecting on either their own insecurity or they want you to not share. Yeah. And then it's important for you to investigate why that's the case. Yeah. That's great advice at the end too, because sometimes you, what you are doing is, is your, in ethnic studies, we talk a lot about um, about shifting the center, and uh, mm. and and creating and and creating discourse that combats harmful discourse. And um, that's deep. Um, well, thank thank you for all of those incredible, profound, beautiful responses. Um, I'm so excited to to just get back into this and. Um, and and get this up as soon as possible. Um, we we're going to do the audacious thing of ending with radical joy and and joy is radical um, in these times because you know the these harmful and destructive forces they just want to take our smiles they want to they want to take away any any joy that we might have and so when we do that. Um, when we refuse to have our smiles taken, um, then it is a little act of resistance as well. Teacher Emil, who? Okay, I I, sh I should do this the way Kev does it. Um, so <laughs> we are children of the hip hop generation here on this show. I, I think I think everybody is, but we grew up with hip hop. Like we're siblings, that not just a couple years apart. And um, and we love hip hop because of the power of the spoken word and the power of the people to voice 
the things that they are experiencing. Hip hop bears witness. Um, always has, always will. May not always like the things that it bears witness to, but it is bearing witness to these things. And um, shoot, I think in another life you're a rapper, homie. Like I feel like you got, I feel like you got the, the <laughs> skills with the words right there. Um, but we got this little segment that we call top five rappers. Um, so you probably know the rules at this point, but I'm gonna I'm going to re recite them. Um, not hierarchical. Hierarchies are white supremacy and westernist. Um, it is not permanent, so it's not set in stone. And I think that's the piece that we really want people to understand is that this is just your top five right now. And that can change. We'll even we'll even air a correction if you find that you are wrong <laughs> and that your list is whack. This would never be my opinion if you had that opinion. Um, and it doesn't have to just be five. We have the Eric Hale rule, um, which came into effect in 2021. When Eric, under the un, under the guise of saying that he had three number twos and five number threes and four number fours, <laughs> um, actually shoehorned twenty five rappers into his top five. I think it's got to be that many. So, and you know why? Because Eric does whatever he wants. Um, so, Teacher Emil, out there in Southern California, who are your top five rappers? Uh, let me just front load this by saying I will not be calling upon the Eric Hale rule um, <laughs> just to make your life a little bit easier. No disrespect to Eric Hale. Um, no, no, we love Eric. Know, yeah, no disrespect. Think, think again. I, I think I can get it in in five. Um, All right. But I might end up play, making up a rule of my own on the way. I love um, it. I'm going to start with someone really basic. Um I'm going to start with him as the, as my basic choice because I need to follow okay. this by saying I loved him before he got into the hype in the last two weeks. Oh, okay. Um, please, please, please don't judge me. Macklemore. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, no um, so I mean, you know, is he like the most radical person that ever existed? No. Um, but I think <laughs> that, um, you know, I, so I, I grew up with immigrant parents who were very afraid of Western media um, yeah. and Western culture. And I mean, I, the older I get, the more I understand them and I really get why they were so hesitant. Um, and so I actually didn't get really exposure to a lot of um, English language music until I was about mm. in middle school. Okay. Um, and so it took me a while to kind of like get my feet wet. Um, and hip hop yep. was very like taboo in my oh, house yeah. for a period of time. <laughs> Macklemore wasn't yep. my first exposure at all. He was like, yep. he was definitely much later on for me, but um, yeah. there's definitely been a couple of pieces that I've come back to um, over time that have really like made me pause and just helped me process. Um, the first one that yeah. comes to mind is um, other side um, in which he's kind of talking about his struggles with, with substance abuse and addiction. Yeah. Um, and it was a really profound song, especially for me to just really sink my teeth into when I did experience the loss of a loved one to addiction. And that's something that is super, super taboo in my community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, without another space to process that, that was really kind of like a source for me. Um, yeah. He ended up speaking at the great big national March for Palestine last week, or maybe not two weeks, wow. it was last week. Um, and he said some really profound things in the realm of, you know, I didn't know everything that I do now, and I am not unteachable. And it's okay to come back and say, like, you know, it's okay to come back with new information and use that to change your judgments, change your perception, to, to adjust your perception of the world when you gain yeah. new information. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so I will give him the flowers where that's due. All right. Um, All right. Starting off with, with the most basic, <laughs> which is Macklemore. Um, I'm going to move into my next one. I feel like you prepared I think for this. I have you to... look prepared. I try. Well, I was th- no, I, I actually am a little worried about not filling in all five. Um, okay. So I'm Got trying it. to make sure I do this. I'm trying to make sure I do this fairly. Um, I think I want to go next to Kendrick Lamar. Um, okay. I think just universally, universally a great choice. I can't necessarily yeah. like pinpoint any one particular, like just in general. Right. I don't yeah. think you can go wrong with Kendrick. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you talk, um, you talk about bearing witness, right? Like, you know, Kendrick's mm-hmm. a lot of Kendrick's lyrics will hit folks, read white folks in a certain way <laughs> because of the manner in which he bears witness in ways that can be mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable for folks um, who don't want to hear those truths or perspectives. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so this, this idea and this like ability to weave that story in a way that is consumable for people who may not otherwise consume that story. That's definitely, I think something that that's so remarkable um, in the time that we live in. Yeah. Um, given that the rule is that everything is in the present moment and that this may or may not last, <laughs> Uh, there is a Palestinian rapper um, by the name of Dabur that I do want to um, put some light onto. Um, you would Ooh, spell, spell it D-A-B-O-O-R. Got that? Okay. D-A-B-O-O-R. Got yep. in English. All right. Um, and so, um, I mean, it's Arabic hip hop is such an interesting um, place to be. And there's been so many that have, so many artists that have come out in the last 15, 20 years that have like really grown from the tradition of hip hop. Um and he's 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 got a song that's been really popular lately that people have been calling the soundtrack of the revolution mm. um in the context of palestine um called in n i n n and then a n n um and so i mean if you've if you've looked at any like arabic language media so the song has come up in the background of so many pieces yeah. but even before all of this was <laughs> happening my husband and i have loved loved um a lot of his music in the sense that he's really speaking he's very unapologetic with um what he puts together um and arabic is a very poetic language um yeah and i think i think i have to credit arabic language for my way with words i think in another life i could have been a poet um and um it's it's an interesting juxtaposition with a language that is so historically poetic in a traditional sense of poetry um Mm -hmm. And also to see that kind of like be fused into the Western created tradition of hip hop. Yeah. Um, and I say Western yeah. tradition only because it was born out of the West, but oh, you know, not through Western values. Um, you know, yeah. it is a subversion of the West. And so yeah. I think it does a great job of like kind of reconciling with two ideas that should conflict with each other, but actually yeah. merge together really well. Well, and I, and um, I, so I, I, feel, if I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say, I, f- I feel like, I feel like, um, I feel like Arabic hip hop is the most natural sort of offshoot of hip hop. I can think of not, not just in terms of language, um, which I don't understand the language, but um, language, <laughs> but also just the the culture and the histories of the people who speak it. Um, it just parallels so tightly, like so tightly, mm-hmm. like if there, if there was going to be international hip hop, it was going to be Arabic. Um, and there's more, of course. I, but... I second that. I second that actually. Um, and on that same note, I just said I was not going to invoke the Eric Hale rule, but you know what? I'm going to invoke yeah. the Eric Hale, uh, Hale rule, and I'm going to give you another 
I'm gonna give you another Palestinian uh, hip hop artist. Um, and his name is Samer Nafar. He uh, he records both as a solo artist and through his band Dem D A M, which in Arabic translates to the word for blood. Um, Samer grew up in with his family in the same hometown that my husband is from in 1948, mm. historic Palestine. And oh, so, wow. although my my husband's family was they were refugees and became displaced, his family stayed, and that town now has the reputation in historic 1948 Palestine is now basically where the, like that's where the ghetto is. That's where the gangs are, where the drugs are dealt, where the violence happens. Um, And, you know, to look at the parallels between how society speaks of what that place has now become versus how we speak about the South side of Chicago and the South side of LA and, um, you know, San Francisco pre-gentrification. It's, it's, I think it's not a coincidence. Um, that hip hop has also emerged from that same place, and that yeah. um, this, you know, hip hop group them, which comprises of Demon and his brother and a friend of his, um, have really grown out of and pulled from that tradition um, as yeah. a form of their resistance. You so they spell his they name for me. When I get do that. Some oh, great sorry. Pieces. Yes. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So his first name Demer, T A M E R. Uh, T A M. Yeah. Okay. E R, and then last name Nafar, N A F A R. Okay, cool. I had half of it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Snaps to you. Good job. Oh yeah. No, and um, I'm excited to make a playlist and and get some of these tracks um on on my own uh on my own playlist. So all right. If you if you need some help, let me know. I'll send you the top tracks. Oh my god, um, I'm so excited. <laughs> got to. Um, the next one. I'm. This is where I make my own rule. Um. <laughs> My next one is not actually a hip hop artist, but okay. a spoken word artist. Okay. Um, because what is hip hop and spoken word? What is spoken word if not a I mean, hip hop? Yeah. Exactly. They're kind of one and the same. Um, and for me, that is uh, a Palestinian poet by the name of Suhair Hamad, S U H E I R, last name Hamad, H A M M A D. Ooh, and her, her spoken word, <laughs> first lo- name S U H. It's okay, S U H E I R. Okay. And then that last name Hamad H A M M A D. Cool. All right. Tell me about him. So she's phenomenal. She is a um, she's a Palestinian spoken word poet raised in Brooklyn, um, daughter of 1948 refugees. Um, she tells in one of her pieces. Of, beautiful heartbreaking story of she parallels her dad to Sam Cooke uh, in the sense that Sam Cooke's music gave him so much comfort in his in his days as you know a new American but also she parallels so much of his life with the story that Sam Cooke tells in A Change Is Gonna Come um, because he was indeed born in a tent probably somewhere by a river on his way to exile Um, and and the promise of something better that never came true, but that we're still holding on to hope for however many decades and generations later, um, and that persistence of continuing to fight. Um, so her her spoken word has been a, a way for me to process my grief um, time and time again, um, not just right now, but in so many times when it's felt difficult and painful to be Palestinian. Um, and she's she's got away with her words that I felt like has just it's pulled me it's grounded me and pulled me back into my body when I felt like I'm I'm ready to be done yeah. holding on to being Palestinian. Yeah. So 
that is my uh, shaking of the rules there. Uh, I love it. If you are ready, I'm going to round out, I'm going to round this out with a classic, a non-negotiable for me. He will always live on this list, probably. And it is indeed the inimitable Lupe Fiasco. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, I'm so here for that. Wasalu. You have to. You have to. I, I actually, the exact words that came out of my mouth at an ethnic studies PD, uh, and I probably should have gotten in trouble for saying this, but I didn't. My exact words were Lupe Fiasco radicalized me. Because mm. he did. Mm. Uh, Lupe Fiasco affirmed me as someone who'd been thinking about this stuff my whole life and was speaking to me. Kick push like speaks to me. Um, but yeah. all, all of it. And then, and then the playfulness and the snarkiness and the, like all he, the brilliant, I think, I think, it's, uh, it's absolutely incredible. It's amazing stuff. And actually shout out Aaron Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, chief legal counsel of uh, Denver public schools out here, um, got into an argument with our superintendent, um, because our superintendent, when he came on the show, did not have Lupe in his top five. <laughs> Oh, and I'm oh, like, I'm Ooh. here for the controversy. Oh, it was so great. It was so great. Yeah. I'm like, Love you that. get it, Aaron. Um, th- this, this top five Love is that. incredible and you have rounded I it gotta, out perfectly. I got to shout out one more thing before, cause Do I know it. we've t- like, I've heard other people mention Lupe. Um, and I would be remiss to not mention that in addition to his, his music or his, his storytelling and his songwriting and just kind of like the way that he plays the words together, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, Growing up post 9-11, struggling to be Muslim and to be publicly Muslim, Lupe Fiasco was also very affirming in that regard. Um, if people don't know, he is he is publicly Muslim. Um, oh, I don't know is. how you can consume his music and not know that part not about him, it. but he is. Um, you know, if you if you missed it in the last 30 years, that might be or 20 something years, that'd be a good thing to keep on your radar. Um, yeah. And for, you know, for kids who grew up being called the sand N word and um, you know, being told that your faith is one of like worshiping goats and, and God knows what other ridiculous things were coming out of Fox news in 2006 and onward, um, you know, to have someone who, who was at that point somewhat mainstream, right? Like he wasn't a nobody. Um, I mean, Kanye brought him up, Kanye brought him up, you know, yep. Yeah. So in addition to radicalizing me in a political way, he radicalized me in the sense that I could be unapologetically Muslim in a time and a space where, I was led to believe that that would be the end of all of my aspirations. Shout out, shout out, out Lupe. Shout out, Lupe. Get on the show. Come on the show. Open invitation. Um, <laughs> uh, Emma, this has been amazing. I just really appreciate you taking the time and just t- and sharing these perspectives, sharing these stories, making these arguments, and giving us a powerful call to action, as well as a fire top five. Um, which we will create a playlist and include with this episode. Um, speechless, which is not something that happens to me that often, <laughs> and um, and I'm speechless because I I, I am am humbly grateful for you um, sharing things with me that are so deep and so visceral and so real for you, and um, and I and I, I can't wait to engage this situation with with new words and new eyes um the bearing witness piece is something that i've said about other issues and and that's something that um i will continue to say today so 
Um, I'm going to keep this really brief. I'm just going to ramble a little bit. And then uh, you and I get to say stay dope together on my queue, if that sounds okay with you. For my guest, Emil, for uh, my guy, Kev, who is doing the thing, which is not here. Um, for the people of the Palestinian diaspora, for all of us that would see a conclusion to settler colonialism in our lifetimes, we are inviting you to stay bearing witness, stay sharing your words, stay putting the stories out there, stay learning, stay interrogating, stay critical, but make sure that above and beyond, you make sure you always Stay Stay Attention, please. Attention, please. Dedicated educators of Two Dope Nation. As this school year gets underway, now is the perfect time to take control of your financial future. We understand that being an educator requires an incredible amount of time and effort during the school year. So now is the best time to prioritize your finances before the school year gets completely out of hand. Am I right? So I want to introduce you to a trusted financial advisor who specializes in working with educators like us. Meet Alex Sierra, a certified financial planner with Cetera Investors. Alex provides educators with planning for our most important financial milestones. He has a deep understanding of the important strategies related to teachers in our retirement, the school pension system, and retirement programs specifically for us. Imagine heading into this upcoming school year and the years to come with confidence, knowing that your finances are in order. By taking time now to work with Alex, you can lay a solid foundation for your financial goals and secure a brighter future. Don't let the busyness of the school year hold you back from achieving your financial dreams. Visit Alex's website at www.toriandalex.cetarainvestors.com slash tudope, spell out, to schedule an initial virtual consultation. And here's the best part. Mention the discount code 2DOPE during your first consultation to receive a 25% discount on their subscription-based financial planning packages. Take this opportunity to invest in your financial well-being before the school year kicks into high gear. Click the link in the description section of the podcast for more information about Alex and Cetera Investors. Remember, your financial success is just as important as your student's success. Let's start the school year on the right financial foot. Cetera Investors is the marketing name of Cetera Investment Services. Securities and insurance products are offered through Cetera Investment Services, LLC, doing insurance business in California as CFG STC Insurance Agency, LLC. Member FINRASIPC. Advisory services are offered through Cetera Investment Advisors, LLC. California Insurance License Number 0L05650. Alexander Sierra, CFP is located at 605 East Huntington Drive, Suite 203, Monrovia, California, 91016, and can be reached at phone number 626-408-1333.
extension 306.